We're now two weeks into June, the month marked the world over as Pride Month. That's thanks in part to the legacy of the Stonewall Uprising, which we touched on last week, that started on the 28th of June 1969. And now that we've looked at the international origins of the Pride movement, it's time to turn the focus a little closer to home. Before your eyes deceive you again, see if you can guess the whereabouts of this tropical island paradise. The clue is in the word island. Well, strange as it seems, this isn't the South Seas. It's in a rather bleak part of the Northern Hemisphere. Well, if you haven't already guessed, it's the Isle of Man. But then strange is an apt word for this delightful island. After a stay here, nothing will surprise you. Just two years ago, the Isle of Man held its first public pride event at the Villa Marina Gardens in Douglas. It was preceded by a march along Strand Street with participants carrying a 50-metre-long rainbow flag. It was quite the sight, and we'll get into Isle of Pride more in the coming episodes. But long before public partying in the nation's capital, life for the LGBTQ community here looked very different. Homosexual acts were decriminalised here in 1992, 25 years later than in England and Wales, and 12 years after Scotland. Before then, same-sex sexual activity was a criminal offence. So what was it like growing up in a time when just being yourself was illegal? I asked a few familiar names. Starting us off is Simon Madrill, a Manx-born poet, writer and performer. How do you describe it? I mean, being gay was something that sort of didn't really exist or where, where one did experience it. It was, certainly my earlier childhood, it was images of fun and entertainment for the masses, you know? So you had... Liberace and John Inman on Are You Being Served, you know, the very camp effeminate figures. So apart from where we were there to provide the entertainment for people, our existence just wasn't wasn't there and therefore one had no reference point. So the feelings that you that you have, you have no idea what they mean because you don't have any anything to connect them to and certainly have a a clear feeling that whatever it is that you're feeling you shouldn't mention i remember overhearing my dad i must have only been about seven my middle brother had got into trouble and um my mum and dad were having a bit of an argument so my dad turned to my mum and said i'd rather have a thief for a son than a queer and that was sort of and even though i didn't know what it meant I knew what it meant, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, this is something that, that is that is not right. And you sort of get a... I mean, I, I sort of tell the story in my queer fellow pamphlet. My first realisation was... I don't know if you've heard of Quentin Crisp, who was a, a very flamboyant, effeminate gay man born in the early 1900s. And there was a TV programme made about him, which was very groundbreaking at the time. In 1975 called The Naked Civil Servant on, on ITV. And for some reason, I managed to get to... So my mum and dad had split up, so my dad might have been working or something, but I watched this programme, and I was absolutely a, a mixture of horrified and mortified and very sad about what I'd seen and this 
this man's life and what he had to endure and all of that. And the following morning, and I, I literally could take you to the exact spot on the playground right now, I could do it and point myself in the right direction. And there was kids running around in the playground shouting, Quentin Queer and all of these things. And I looked over, there was this group of girls chatting, they were quite a long way from me. And I thought to myself, how terrible it would be to be like him. And at that moment, I knew that I was. I just knew. It wasn't because I could, it wasn't due to any reference point, any knowledge of sexual attraction, any knowledge of nothing. I just knew. And, and I knew at that point, this was something that I had to ignore and pretend didn't happen and, and therefore did for, for quite a long period of time. And not being, you know, being captain of the football team and not being effeminate and all of those things was sort of a, a blessing and a curse, really. It, it, it's, um, it's very difficult as a child to reconcile and understand feelings when you've got no no reference point that these feelings are actually something that is real, does exist. Other people feel it too. I'm Zoe Bennett, and growing up, you know, I had no role models. I had no, you know, there was nobody really on TV to look up to. There's certainly nothing like they had now. There was no internet, you know, I'm old. Um, <laughs> born before Google and, and YouTube. So, you know, I didn't have anything or anyone in my life that I could, you know, I could not really learn from, but sort of, you know, to to ask questions of. Mm-hmm. And back in those times, it still was very, very much illegal to to be gay. You know, I, I was born in 75, so, you know, I grew up sort of 80s and 90s, and it was still very much a, a taboo subject on the island. You know, um, and there, there were there were few voices, but they were important voices who were coming through, but they were being persecuted for it. You know, they were being hounded, and it really, it was scary. It was knowing who you were, but not not feeling like you were able to say anything because you didn't want to get hit with sticks. <laughs> so yeah, being able to go from from being that frightened kid who didn't want anyone to know because she was afraid that she would be sort of shunned to being able to be part of an incredible team to put on something that was so well received and that everybody enjoyed. It was an honour, to be honest, and it was quite emotional. Mm. I'm not going to lie. I am Richard Butt. I am the editor of Media Isle of Man's newspapers and websites. It was quite scary because um, I didn't know anyone like me in that, in that sense. Um, I, I didn't want anybody to find out. Um, in the days before the internet, there was very, very little information. It was all caricatures on television and so on. And, of course, during the 80s, there was the AIDS crisis combined with the Thatcher government's um, imposition of Section 28, which was all very, very homophobic situation, a very homophobic sort of atmosphere in which to grow up and to... Um, have to face those ideas. So actually everything was pointing against coming out uh, at that time. Anyone who lived here back before decriminalisation will know a number of young men took their own lives after being arrested or simply outed to their families. 
Those appearing in court would be reported on in the press, as is the case with anything that's against the law. I spoke to Richard about court reporting and how he felt about reports addressing his fellow community. One interesting thing, so a big part of why I want to speak to you is the idea of being a journalist. So we obviously have to be very impartial in our in our reporting. We keep our biases out of it. It's it, that's the core fundamentals of journalism. So when um, homosexuality was illegal here, what was the situation on reporting on it, and what was your feelings at the time? Well, there's two factors, I suppose. Um, in the newspapers, we were able to have opinions in the comment column. And indeed we did, and I'm proud to say that the examiner under Lionel Cowan in those days always said it should be decriminalised in the comment column. The rival newspaper, the Manx Independent at the time, didn't quite go that far. And also Lionel, to his great credit, gave the Ellen Van Gay group a column before it was legalised, and so that information was out in the Courier at the time. In terms of court reporting, it's a very, very, very different situation. Um, we report the courts, we don't decide the laws at the moment, we have laws against all sorts of things like in, in drugs terms, which I don't agree with, but we report the courts as they happen, as the laws have been passed by the politicians. And at that time, the law was that homosexuality or homosexual acts were against the law and people were prosecuted because of that. As is well documented, on the 5th of July 1991, or Tim Day, gay rights campaigner Alan Shea exercised his democratic right to present a petition of grievance to the island's parliament in St John's. His petition saw a change in the law relating to the decriminalisation of homosexuality. I went and did some digging in the Max Radio archives and I found our coverage from that day. There are fears that the ancient pomp and ceremony of the open-air Timwald sitting may take a back seat this year to the continuing row over plans by gay rights campaigners to use the occasion to highlight their cause. Groups who are both for and against a change in the island's laws on homosexuality will be present on the Fairfield. To date, only one petition for redress of grievance has been made public, with local gay activist Alan Shea calling on the government to restore the right of individual petition to Europe. Despite criticism that he'll be desecrating Timwald Day, Mr Shea says he still intends to appear as a concentration camp inmate. I've got so much support now, I wasn't going to wear it, and now I've been inspired by so much support that I'm receiving from parents who are going to walk with me with their children. Um, the costume will be definitely warm. Official guests from Australia, Norway, Southern Ireland and the UK will be present at Timwald, which will be presided over for the first time by Lieutenant Governor Sir Lawrence Jones. Alan was joined on the lawns of Timwald Hill by Members of Outrage, a UK-based pressure group to stage their lawful protest. They brought placards and wore T-shirts with slogans such as Not Guilty. This is your meeting of the Manx people. Who do you want to remove? They're not even Manx. Nobody asked them here, so they should go. Well, it's not a kerfuffle, but the Manx public are not, some of them at least, are not taking to this lightly and the police are moving in and asking them to cool it and to take the banners down. They're asking them to lower the banners but they're declining. But that was just a small incident there. Inspector Platt of the Manx Constabulary said to cool it and I think that is probably the extent of the protest though it may re-emerge when the petitions are actually presented. In presenting his petition Alan made a statement and no detail was accidental. Well, it's actually all to prevent the concentration camp 
gay play done with Ian, Ian McKellen and Michael Cashman and a few other things with the history of um, Nazi Germany where everyone keeps forgetting was it wasn't just the Jews, it was gays, it was disabled and when they rescued them these people were taken back out but the gays were left in because it was against the law so gays were even put back into the concentration camps they weren't released so I thought for focusing the world what's happening in the Isle of Man I thought the way the abuse was given on the Isle by politicians by people homophobes I had a brainwave idea of creating a concentration camp uniform which was made from Marks and Spencer's pyjamas a friend of mine, Tony, he, he, he put the stripes on. Then I, I took it out for its first day out, believe it or not, at London Pride in 1991, without the three legs of man. When we came back to the Isle of Man, we also said, you know, we've got to focus this costume. What can, and then we thought, three legs of man, pink triangle, because that's what gays were in, in, the, in the camps. And then we put the government officer's phone number below, which was 626262, which they changed, believe it or not, after the costume was worn. And they banned outrageous costumes. So no one could wear a costume, anything similar to this now. But it was to show focus on homophobia in the Isle of Man and to get an outdated law passed. Because many people don't realise people were committing suicide, they were dying, you know. And they all had families here, so... Do you think that it's coming over from elsewhere that maybe shines a light on like the issues in a place? Like you maybe if you grew up here, it's just something you're kind of like, well, that's the way it is, you get on with it. Whereas if you come on over from somewhere else, you want to make a change. Well, I came over here thinking, um, and I've always said this, that was like, the Isle of Man was part of the United Kingdom. You know, I didn't see any difference. Being a bit naive probably, but it's, it's um, only when... Aisle brought in the sexual offence and they said, what's all this? And it's said, oh, it's against the law. Oops, a daisy. So, you know, and I, and I did confess of breaking the law because part of the, the protest is to try to get arrested by the police in the Isle of Man and they wouldn't arrest me. I went, I went public on all the interviews, even with Ian McKellen and other people that have broken the law. I've publicly said this. But the police never came near me. Maybe because I was under the protection of Amnesty International because of all the abuse, death threats I was receiving. Um, my phones were tapped. You know, in the Isle of Man, the police in those days could do whatever they want. They didn't have pace. They could put you under extreme pressure. And out of this extreme pressure, look what happened. People died. And, you know, we got an apology of sorts, you know, but... We've all got memories. We live with these um, things every day. I do. I, I've lost people too on the Isle of Man as well. So. so then you do the protest at Timwell Day and what happened after that? Well, I was advised by people that I should leave the Isle of Man for a week or two. So I shot down to London. and I used a friend's flight in Chelsea for a couple of weeks. And then I came back and it was a different response when I came back. So, I mean, I got lots of phone calls when I came back saying, you know, well done, keep up the work, and that's what I continue to do, so. Behind every protest that sees a successful result, there are lawmakers fighting to make the changes necessary to be able to render it as such. In this case, a handful of MHKs wanted to see Alan's vision take shape. 
One of them was Hazel Hannan, who was elected in 1986 as the MHK for Peel. She says it all came down to a simple principle, human rights for all. I was elected to the House of Keys in 1986 and uh, before that, Tinwald House of Keys, I'm not absolutely sure, because it was done in private, they decided that because of the birch had been to the European Court of Human Rights, that they would give notice that they were going to pull out of the European Court of Human Rights. And that's how it all started. It was one of the issues that came up. If the Isle of Man signed up again to the European Convention on Human Rights, the law would have to be changed to legalise homosexuality between consenting males over 21. And the Speaker brought forward a, a motion because obviously he'd been there, this was Sir Charles Carouche, brought forward a motion that we should sign up again to the convention. And so there was a big debate on it, and that's when I spoke. I actually made quite a good speech on it. And anyway, th it was lost. That was in 1987, and that motion was deferred, and it was taken up again by Brigadier Butler. He was Ramsey. And so he moved the deferment. He also brought forward a motion to adjourn it. So when it came back to the House of Keys mm -hmm. again, when he brought it back, he was the first to, again to speak on it and the reason for and everything. So that debate happened. That was um, May the 5th. And they didn't want to include any change in the law with relation to homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And that was also uh, lost. But then in December... There was a second reading of the Sexual Offences Bill where it left homosexuality on the statute book mm -hmm. and it wasn't included in the bill because it was upgrading a number of issues uh, with relation to sex offences. Then it went to a select committee, the first of two select committees along its lifetime, and um, it went to uh, three, three members and that was Butler, Madrill and Quine, all against change, change of the law. But that's how it was. And I'm, I moved all my notices of motion, bringing in the, the changes. Also, rape in marriage. I was able to introduce that as well. Mm -hmm. And eventually we were able to get the law changed in 1992. But it was a, a long uphill struggle. Miles Walker was chief minister and he actually supported the change. Mm -hmm. Not that he supported homosexuality because they all said how horrendous it was and how awful it was and you know, I mean, you don't have to think about what people do in private, that's up to them but it wasn't when it came to men you see. And I think they all felt a bit threatened by it but it, it, they were they were very nasty um, about the whole thing and yeah, they were all sort of holier than thou. There was a lot of holier than thou people out in the community as well mm -hmm. and of course everybody thought that I would never get elected again and um, anyway I did. Miles Walker came under a lot of threats, family did and so that was very, that was nasty. He had a government position to uphold things like the convention, human rights for us all um, all the the freedoms, the Article 8, which respects family and privacy and all the rest of that. And I think most of us came under some sort of pressure, like heavy breathing and 
saying nasty things down the phone and, you know, the kids picking up the phone and the, but other people generally, you know, within the British Isles and further afield, people in Brussels supporting me, people in the entertainment industry, Michael Kalman and um, Ian McClellan. Mm-hmm. And it was so sort of... And Stonewall, Tim Barnett was brilliant supporting us. The There was also, you know, other people because they knew the pressure that we were all under. Mm-hmm. We wanted change. We wanted respect for our people. And we didn't think that it would be any different. We didn't think that people would behave differently. We, we didn't think we'd be invaded by homosexuals. And we didn't think, you know, all of these sort of things. Mm. Uh, we thought the Manx people were very understanding and they'd already accepted homosexuals living amongst them. And so it was... It was it was just something that we felt was was quite natural to change, mm-hmm. change the law. And, you know, I'm speaking to you on a day when the law has been brought in in Uganda, mm-hmm. which is a member of the Commonwealth, and it has brought in the most horrendous law. And the people in Uganda must be very, very frightened. And I, I, I feel for them because... If somebody thinks somebody is gay, they can go to the police. They have to go to the police and say that person is gay because if they know and they don't say anything, they could be imprisoned. Mm. Is it difficult then when you're one of these people who've like really fought to make a change um, in terms of legislation and you know bringing forward these rights to see countries repealing their laws and there would be someone in Uganda who probably fought just as hard as you did to get the laws through which are now being repealed. I just wonder what your thoughts are when you see things like that happening. Oh yes, it's it's soul-destroying because we have to be aware that things can happen here as well. You know, the law can be changed. We've got to remain vigilant, you know, and understand it doesn't matter whether it's... You know, there is this thing, somebody came came for somebody and I didn't do anything and somebody else came and uh, for somebody else mm-hmm. and I didn't do anything and then they came for me mm-hmm. and that could be that could happen here it could happen you know could happen anywhere and it is yes it, it is it's soul soul destroying that what these people must be going through must be I mean we went through it to a certain extent here when the police took action at uh, a nobles park so, I mean, that was a dreadful time for people. And, and not just there, but we had, we had other young lads taking their own lives because mm-hmm. of, of pressure. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's, um, it is, it's, it's, it's very sad. You've been listening to the second instalment of a special series exploring the history of Pride here on Manx Radio. Next week, we'll be looking at the formation of the charity Isle of Pride and everything that went into staging the first public event here on the Isle of Man. We'll be hearing from the people that made it happen. You've seen swans swimming along and paddling frantically. I think we were just... We were flapping and splashing (laughs) frantically (laughs) to get it over the line. All that's forgotten when you walk through the doors and you see everybody enjoying themselves. The sun was shining. Everyone was having a great time. It was quite the thing. 
it was a pleasure to be a part of and an honour to be a part of. Um, and we were aware there had been previous Pride events um, and it certainly wasn't our intention to detract from them. That was something that was very much needed at that time mm. um, and I think probably went as far as maybe it could at that time, safely and, and confidently. Um, and there was a huge amount of effort had gone in from previous organisers to get those up and running. Um, but it was very much the large-scale you know, march with a, an event that was very much for the whole family that was what we were trying to achieve. It, it was brilliant to see and after waiting you know your whole life to see it it's it's really impressive so until next time i'm siobhan fletcher and i'll see you soon